Hello and welcome to the reading of the business record for Friday, July 29th, 2022. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. This week's cover story, Training the Next Generation of Leaders. Partnerships Fellowship Program Prepares Young Professionals to Lead by Michael Crum. A program offered by the Greater Des Moines Partnership is giving the young professionals of today the skills they need to step into the leadership roles of tomorrow. Attracting and retaining top talent has been an ongoing challenge for Central Iowa employers and economic development professionals, and the Partnership's Fellowship Program is designed to retain top talent that is already here through networking, professional training, and community engagement. Companies throughout Central Iowa participate in the two-year program. Selecting young professionals who have up to two years' experience working in their organization. The young professionals receive mentoring from executives across the region, have access to community engagement opportunities, and get a customized professional development curriculum. They also work on a capstone project with a local nonprofit organization. The most recent class was the second cohort of the fellowship program. They began in August 2020, and 21 of them graduated in June. The first cohort began in August 2018 and graduated in June 2020. The business record spoke with three members of the most recent cohort about their experience in the program, what they learned about themselves, and what their goals are for the future. We spoke with Mark Morano, a consultant and software engineer with Nationwide. Gina Reedy, a technology office analyst with Wellmark Blue Cross and Blue Shield. And Brandon Rolfson, an actuarial technician with FNG Life. Here's what we learned. Mark Morano, 25, an Iowa State University alumnus who has a degree in software engineering. Question, what is your key takeaway from your participation in the fellowship program? We were able to engage in classes that would have otherwise been available to only the leaders of our companies. I was always finding myself to be lucky to just be in the room. Through the training I was given and the guidance we had and the experiences we had, I'm more confident I can participate in my community and make a difference. What part of the program did you find to be the most rewarding? I participated in a nonprofit project with Central Iowa Shelter and Services, helping to develop their AgriHood plan. Helping them and getting to know what that initiative was and their plans to help the community, to be a part of that was definitely the most rewarding to me. What class do you feel you benefited from the most? As a team lead software engineer, I have engineers from different ethnicities, developers offshore in India, and I've always struggled to connect with those engineers. And the tarot classes that focused on growing that connection in the workplace helped tremendously. It talked about how to grow those relationships and realize those cultural differences in the workplace, and it's helped me build a more connected team knowing how to appreciate and recognize the culture of other professionals. 
learning to appreciate the impact of culture in my workplace and how I can bring diverse people from different cultures together to solve the problems we face. What are your goals? A goal of mine would be to move into that executive leader strategist role and use the skills I have today to jumpstart that move. A personal goal would be to use the skills gained through the courses and my involvement in the nonprofit project to increase my engagement in the community. I feel like doors have opened through my participation in the program and the skills I received to go out and make an impact not only in my career, but in my community. What advice would you give to other young professionals? Pay attention to everything that's going on around them. The fellowship helped open my eyes to what is happening, whether it is community events or what the community needs. What is your hope for the future of Des Moines? Des Moines has been doing a fantastic job of growing in people, diversity, and culture, and it's incredibly important to retain that and continue building on that. Gina Reedy, 25, a Drake University alumna who has a degree in Information Systems and Marketing and a Master's in Business Administration. What is your key takeaway from your participation in the fellowship program? A major part of my experience was building those long-lasting connections with the people I met. It was a great way to meet other people and get more engaged in the community. I got opportunities to hone my presentation skills, my professional presence skills, and identify people's underlying interests. That all leads to, as a leader, learning how to find people's inner motivations. What did you learn about yourself from the training? We focused a lot on working with different personality types, so as an introvert, How could I work with other extroverts? How we can problem solve together and learn how I work best, whether that be under pressure or signs I may exhibit when I'm under pressure. Learning how to work with different personality types was a big takeaway for me because I think it's relatable for everyone, no matter what their job is or what their career path is. Was there a strength you discovered about yourself? I love to teach people. I feel motivated and productive when I have the opportunity to teach someone something that I am passionate about. I really didn't know that before, but when I was given the opportunity to do that, I really found a passion for that. So taking that back into my work environment, if I incorporate even a little of that into my day, I have a great day. What weakness did you discover about yourself? Taking a back seat and not interjecting my opinion at first, even when it matters to me. I'm often a listener at first and then share my opinion. And that can mean that sometimes my opinion is missed because I'm not sharing it up front with people. I realized if I am really passionate about something and I want my opinion to be heard, I need to have the confidence to step in and take action and not just ride in the back seat. What nonprofit project did you work on? I was part of the Eat Greater Des Moines project, 
We were tasked with improving community refrigerator setups. We helped create a plan for people who want to set up new community refrigerators. Some tips on how to do that. It was really interesting to learn about and get us out there. It's something I had never heard of, so I was excited to work on it. What are your goals? I now feel more confident in my work, and I'm hoping to further those leadership opportunities, whether that is personal leadership or leading others. I hope to improve those skills over time and hopefully be able to lead more people in the future. What advice would you give to other young professionals? Connect with other people and keep those relationships. Forming long-lasting relationships with others, whether that is in your com company or in the community, having that network of people to reach out to is really helpful. What is your hope for the future of Des Moines? There's so much to do here, whether that's farmers markets, cultural events, art festivals, and I love the diversity of events you can go to, and I hope that only continues to grow in the future and help attract and retain young people and talent. Brandon Rolfson, 26, University of Iowa alumnus with a degree in mathematics. What is your key takeaway for you from the fellowship program? It was an excellent opportunity with all the networking and professional development, along with community service opportunities. They definitely kept us busy, and it was just extremely rewarding. Was there a part of the program that you feel you benefited from the most? I think I benefited most from the professional development courses. One particularly was about presentations and how to effectively lead a meeting and capture your audience. I found that to be so applicable every day in my career. It taught us how many little things we can polish up and collectively how much of a difference it truly makes. What did you learn about yourself? The course we took was regarding personality types. When we took the assessment, it confirmed some of my tendencies and gave an explanation for it. I am extremely organized, regimented, and things like that, and it helped me give clarity to different personality types and how I can adjust my personality type and habits to better interact with others. Was there a strength you discovered about yourself? I think being an effective communicator... A lot of things I discovered, beginning with my personality assessment and being able to clearly communicate my point and stay organized, stay on top of things and hold people accountable, things like that actually led me to make a career switch toward the end of the program. All those things played perfectly into my new role. Rolfson previously worked at Farm Bureau Financial before moving to FNG. Did you discover weaknesses about yourself? I would say my public speaking and the confidence that came with it. I truly learned how much I had to polish up, and it was quite a bit. Day one when I came in, it was horrible. I was so psyched out. They filmed us to critique our body language, things like eye contact or how I wasn't effectively conveying information, and it really showed me how much I needed to work on. What are your goals? 
Career-wise, I'd like to eventually move into a management role. Personally, I'd like to be able to give back more to the community. Through the service projects, it opened my eyes to how, how easy it is to make a difference in the community if you just lend a little time. What service project did you participate in? I was involved with the Global Greens program with Lutheran Services in Iowa. What we did was help them to try to overcome some hurdles, like securing more land in the Des Moines area so that farmers, who are mostly refugees, can have their own land to work and build equity. So that was extremely rewarding. What advice would you give to other young professionals? Just network, network, and network. I'm finding that the networking component is super rewarding. Once you meet these people, a lot of these techniques and tips and stuff can be transferred from one individual to others to just spread that wealth of knowledge, which is just one of the values of networking. What is your hope for the future of Des Moines? To keep booming like it is right now and continue to grow and keep putting a huge emphasis on diversity and attracting and retaining young talent. Providing opportunities like this one will do wonders for the community to continue on the path that we're on. From the Closer Look column, meet two leaders you should know, Scott and Molly Cutler, Managers of Cutler Development, by Kathy A. Bolton. A funny thing happened as developer Scott Cutler passed through Houston a couple years ago. A dating app he was using matched him with a person who was commuting near the Houston airport. Cutler, who was traveling to Mexico on a trip to go rock climbing, didn't get notified of the match until several days later when he returned to Iowa. Cutler reached out to Molly Patterson, the person with whom he had been matched, via the app, and they decided they wanted to meet. I was suggesting places in Houston, and he was suggesting places in Des Moines, Molly said. We were both like, I've never heard of that place before. We'd try again. Eventually, we figured out what had happened. When Scott and Molly learned that they lived more than 900 miles apart from each other, they decided they still wanted to meet. A few weeks after, they began corresponding and talking on the phone. They were able to meet face-to-face -face in Denver, Colorado. We met for a drink, and the rest is history, Molly said. The pandemic didn't deter the two from spending time together. In certain ways, it afforded us some flexibility, because during COVID, people were meeting remotely, so that allowed us both to work remotely, Scott said. They were married last September. About a year after they started seeing each other, Molly began doing some work for Cutler Development, a company Scott began in 2017. The business was fun and interesting, and so different than what I was doing, said Molly, who formerly, for nearly nine years, worked for ExxonMobil in Houston. She left that company in February. We recently caught up with Scott and Molly Cutler and asked a few questions. Talk about Cutler development and some of the projects you've done. Scott, 
The business is small, and we work out of our house and try to keep the overhead as low as possible. Our first project was in Valley Junction, 224 Fifth Street, where the Winchester Pub is located. I heard it was on the market. We bought it, and we learned a lot of lessons along the way. What did you learn that you're now applying to your other projects? Scott. I learned that I really like working with historic buildings. I like neighborhoods that have walkability and mixed uses. That project, 224 Fifth Street, had both commercial and multifamily. Since then, we've tried really hard to put local small businesses in our commercial spaces. I like the housing piece as well. That's been a thread that over the years we've really tried to build upon. Now, two of the things we try to integrate into every project, if we can, is commercial space on the first floor and apartments above. And we really try hard to push the boundaries of environmental design with our projects. What does that mean? Molly. Baked into the mission statement for Cutler Development is developing projects that help progress neighborhood, society, and the environment. On the environmental side, projects Scott has done over the past six years have progressed from 224 Fifth Street, where in the multifamily units the HVAC was upgraded to a more efficient system. On the next project, at 312 Fifth Street, solar panels are in use. Now we're doing 304 Fifth Street, which is Iowa's second ever mass timber building. The plethora of environmental benefits from carbon sequestration in the wood itself to the process of the beams, columns, and decking, and the way that it's made wastes no part of the tree compared to more traditional 2x4 construction methods. Scott. During COVID, we found out that the supplier of the mass timber we're using in 304 Fifth Street is a family-owned sawmill in Oregon. So if driving between Des Moines and Houston wasn't enough, we drove out to Oregon and visited the plan and met the people who run it. Explain the importance of mass timber to the commercial development business. Scott. There's studies that have been done, and it's been documented, about the benefits to apartment tenants of living in a wood environment. So, two benefits are aesthetics and the environment. Molly. Traditional construction accounts for around 40% of carbon dioxide emissions, and so the more we can try and at least offset that by using materials to capture that carbon and hold it forever is a good thing. Those trees grew, they captured carbon, and now they'll sit in a building and keep that carbon contained. Talk about why you like including residential components in your projects. Scott, there's a lot of statistics out there on the demand and need for housing, not just in the Des Moines area, but really all metros across the country. We try to integrate housing that has an affordability component to our projects. That sometimes creates challenges for development projects. Affordable housing conjures a certain image in people's minds. What we've chosen to do is, probably more appropriately, label the residential units in our projects as workforce housing. 
the incentives that we use often focus toward infill projects and allow for redevelopment without gentrification. Allow a building to be built or redeveloped that is affordable to people who have jobs, teachers, engineers, architects. Molly. Scott's projects are allowing people to live, work, and play in their neighborhood. What does the next three or so years look like for Cutler Development? Scott. We see ourselves as a boutique developer, which we joke is just a fancy way of saying small. We like doing high-touch projects. What do you mean by high-touch? Molly. We're driving by every day, checking in and seeing how the progress of a project is going, hopefully fostering relationships with commercial tenants that perhaps are looking to expand and we would continue to keep them in that neighborhood by offering additional space. Molly, talk a little bit about the jump from ExxonMobil to commercial real estate development. What has that been like? Molly, The technical skills may be different between chemical engineering and commercial real estate development, but a lot of the other skills, soft skills like project management, financial modeling, risk tolerance, and leading teams, I've found the skills to be very transferable. Actually, they take on even more meaning when you're at a smaller company where all of those choices are affecting the day-to-day lives of you and your partner and the project outcome. What do the two of you do in your free time? Molly, we love to travel. We have a sprinter van that we built out. Scott, it was our first development project together. It was our COVID project. We did all of the construction on it ourselves, which was really fun. Molly, we've done a lot of road trips in the U.S. in it. We've traveled abroad. We love biking. At a glance, Molly, Hometown, Alexandria, Virginia. Family, husband, Scott Cutler. Education, Bachelor of Science degree in Chemical Engineering, Yale University. Work background. In February, became manager at Cutler Development. July 2013 to February 22, ExxonMobil in Houston, where she held a variety of positions, including the most recent as polyethylene market development leader. Age, 31. Contact molly at cutlerdevelopment.com. At a glance, Scott. Hometown, West Des Moines. Family, wife, Molly Cutler. Education, Bachelor of Science degree in Construction Engineering, Iowa State University. Master of Science in Financial Risk Management, Colorado State University. Work Background. Founder and manager of Cutler Development, which he began in March 2017. December 2015 2015 to February 2017, project manager at PDC Partners in Denver, Colorado. May 2012 to May 2014, associate project manager at Opus Group, which has offices in Clive. And October 2010 to May 2012, Builder at Cutler Construction LLC in Waukee. Age 37, contact scott at cutlerdevelopment.com. In a related story in the commercial real estate section, 
Iowa's second mass timber project underway in Valley Junction by Kathy A. Bolton. Des Moines area builder Peter Cutler was cautious yet excited when his brother, a developer, approached him about using mass timber to construct a mixed-use project in West Des Moines Valley Junction. I anticipated it to be very challenging, said Peter Cutler, owner of Cutler Construction, based in Waukee. What surprised me the most was that everything fit well. Several different suppliers and designers were part of the project at 304 Fifth Street in West Des Moines, Cutler said. A structural engineer and architect also worked on the project, a three-story, 13,617-square-foot building that includes commercial, office, and 11 apartment units. We have all these different products coming from different places. It just seemed like a recipe for something going wrong, Color said. But, lo and behold, it has all gone together very easily. Scott Cutler, who founded Cutler Development in 2017, was well into planning the Valley Junction project when architect Daniel Wilrich suggested Cutler consider using mass timber in the building. Wilrich, director of architecture and business development for Peld's Design Services in Des Moines, had attended a national convention where he heard several speakers praise the benefits of using mass timber in projects instead of steel and traditional stick lumber. He shared what he had learned with Scott Cutler. The speakers talked a lot about why it's a good building material, not only for the aesthetics it brings to a project, but environmental sustainability that's inherent in it, Wilrich said. We dug into it a little more, and Scott decided to redesign the project with mass timber. Before Cutler made a final decision on whether to use the material in the mixed-use project, he and wife Molly Cutler drove to Oregon to visit the family-owned sawmill that produces the product. Frere's Engineered Wood is a, quote, very innovative company and jumped out in front of the pack to develop this type of mass timber said Molly Cutler, a manager at Cutler Development. This particular type of mass timber has a lot less waste of the wood, and you can actually calculate how much carbon is getting sequestered, she said. When they returned from the trip, the green light was given to use mass timber in the project. The change in appearance was just aesthetic, Wilrich said, but it was a full redesign for our structural engineer. What is mass timber? Mass timber is a new category of wood product that consists of multiple layers of young timber that are nailed or glued together. The compressed wood forms structurally sound and load-bearing material that can be panelized, built in a factory rather than on site, for construction. The finished product is strong, but more lightweight than concrete or steel columns, beams, or panels. Buildings up to 18 stories tall can now be built with mass timber after changes to the International Building Code went into effect in 2021. The use of mass timber products can be more cost and time efficient than steel, concrete, or traditional lumber products, Will Rich and Scott Cutler said, 
Much of the lumber used in the building under construction in Valley Junction was prefabricated off-site, they said. The building tends to go up faster because the pieces are milled to exact specifications, Wilrich said. It's like a big puzzle. It goes up quicker because it's lighter than moving steel around, and it takes fewer people to get the work done, he said. The project is Iowa's second mass timber development and the first one to include a residential component, Scott Cutler said. The state's first mass timber project is located at 111 East Grand Avenue in Des Moines' East Village neighborhood. One of the main reasons Scott and Molly Cutler have become mass timber fans is the product's environmental benefits, they said. Steel and concrete are responsible for much of the construction industry's carbon emissions, according to Architecture 2030, a Santa Fe, New Mexico nonprofit group established 20 years ago in response to climate-related issues. Human-made structures, including buildings, roads, and utility-related structures, account for 50% of carbon dioxide emissions, 20% of which comes from building materials and construction, according to the group. The use of wood materials made from trees sequesters or captures carbon by taking it out of the atmosphere. In addition, the Oregon-based company that supplied much of the mass timber for the building at 304 Fifth Street harvests trees that are 5 to 10 years old and replaces them with newly planted trees, Molly Cutler said. They are not cutting down old-growth, giant, beautiful trees. And by replanting new trees almost immediately, there's an ongoing sustainability factor, she said. In traditional lumber production, 2x4s and other lumber pieces are cut out of the circular tree trunks. Leaving behind a lot of waste, Molly Cutler said. At the Oregon Company, they use technology that basically peels the tree back in layers, which leaves next to no waste, another environmental benefit, and produces a beautiful repeating knot pattern, she said. Not all of the wood in the Valley Junction project is mass timber, Scott Cutler said. Much of the interior framing was built with traditional wood studs. This project is more of a hybrid mass timber project, he said. The Valley Junction development was the first Iowa project to be awarded a U.S. Forest Service's Wood Innovations Grant, receiving $243,035 in 2021. A building permit valued at $1.8 million was issued for the project in August 2021. Construction is expected to be completed by December. Scott Cutler bought the property in tw January 2021, which included a two-story house that was raised. Cutler said he'll likely use mass timber products in future development projects. We are excited about this project and hope we can share our learnings and knowledge with others to help them better understand the benefits of mass timber, he said. You're listening to the reading of the business record for Friday, July 29, 2022, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. From the Fearless column, Women Leading the Way. 
what being recognized for gender representation in leadership means at the University of Iowa by Emily Barsky. One of our goals with Fearless is to connect with people across the state who share goals similar to our mission of empowering Iowa women to succeed in work and life. So far this year, we've stopped in the Quad Cities and Sioux City. And for our next stop, we chose to spend some time in Iowa City. Earlier this year, the University of Iowa was recognized nationally for gender representation in leadership among top higher education institutions. The study by the EOS Foundation looked at representation in key positions, including the president and academic deans. While in Iowa City, I sat down with some of the university's female leaders to discuss gender representation, what advice they have for other women leaders, and what barriers still need to be addressed in higher education. The University of Iowa women leaders joining me were Barbara Wilson, President of the University, Amy Christoph Brown, Tippy College of Business Dean, Harriet Nembard, College of Engineering Dean, Edith A. Parker, College of Public Health Dean, Sarah Sanders, College of Liberal Arts and Sciences Dean, Tanya M. Uden-Holman, University College Dean, and Julie Zerwick, College of Nursing, Kelting Dean. Wilson is the third female president at the institution, which is rare in higher education, and was days away from being one year into the position at the time of the interview. At the university, women lead half of the academic units. All but Amanda Thine, the graduate college dean, were able to join the fearless conversation. With female students making up more than half of the student body, Representation makes a difference, Wilson said. I'm really proud that I'm not the first woman president of this university, Wilson said, adding that it eliminates some of the expectations of how she should act because she's not the first woman to hold the role. In a way, it sort of lifts the burden of gender off my leadership. I've had many, many students say to me that it means a lot to them that the university has so many women leaders. It gives them a sense of possibility, she said. But there's still work to do, the group acknowledged. Christoph Brown mentioned that the same study that ranked UI so high in gender representation also showed Iowa's rank of tenured full professors was low. I look at where we are now based on history, and it feels great, she said. I look at the next five years and who the next set of women are that are going to be department chairs, who are going to step into associate provost roles or deanships, and that rank is thin right now. So to me, that's kind of a mobilizing effect to say, if we want to keep this up and not let down the tradition that we have, we need to get moving at the higher levels in our faculty ranks, she said. The group described pressure to not only perform well as leaders, but to represent all those who identify similarly when they are the first woman in a role or the first in a while. The glass cliff effect, 
which describes situations in which women are more likely to be appointed to leadership positions in times of uncertainty or when an organization isn't performing well, while men are more likely to be appointed to stable leadership positions, was also brought up. Here are some of the key points the women spoke about. Women leaders can help people better see opportunities and barriers that still exist. Sanders said she's proud that oftentimes other women on the faculty ask to meet with her because they've never worked with a female leader before. The second piece that makes me feel really proud is when I have male colleagues who've never worked with a female leader come and say, I've never understood the challenges that it takes for a woman to lead until I've had to watch you and had to see things that maybe I just dismissed prior, Sanders said. Setting an example for both women and men is important, she said. Women are sometimes held to a double standard when it comes to being nice or vulnerable. Women in leadership can help challenge the stereotypes of what a woman should be and what a leader should be. Wilson said that Western cultures often believe leaders should be the type of people who are aggressive, charismatic, someone everyone listens to, and always confident but never vulnerable. Women are breaking molds or everyday expectations about how to be a leader and how you are effective, Wilson said. One of the things I've said to many groups is, don't be afraid to be vulnerable. Be authentic. Be real. And sometimes that means saying you don't know the answer or you made a mistake, she said. And for a lot of people, that's very unsettling. Why would you ever showcase that you might have some vulnerabilities? That's part of that template of leadership that I think women are challenging and being challenged by when I hear the pressures that we're feeling. It's because we have a pretty singular model of leadership in this society, and we have to be willing to bust that open a little bit, she said. But the idea that being nice or vulnerable is a quality women can bring to leadership presents its own challenges. In nursing, where the field is predominantly women, Zurich said, we almost have the opposite problem, where you're expected to be the quiet person. And then when you do take a more dominant role, you're labeled as stepping off the path. The next generation wants change, and they want it now. Nampard said there are several outside organizations working to hold higher education institutions accountable, but today's students are also leading the charge. The younger generation, the students, are perhaps a bit more impatient for change, she said. And it's been doubly interesting for me having three daughters all in college and seeing their lens and experience. I've shared many times that these young people are not waiting on us to get comfortable, she said. Young women in particular are pushing for different systems to help make higher education more inclusive in its accessibility, responsiveness to centering the learner, and in its leadership approaches and representation, Nembard said. The current pushing will result in change just as it did in their formative years, the leaders acknowledged. I think we have a lot of rigidity in our educational systems, Zerwick said. 
I think a new generation will push us to question, is that rigidity of value? Or are there ways we could think differently and transform some of our educational systems? Working moms need to be accommodated. Among the many changes in academia the women leaders have seen over the years, many mentioned that they've seen much progress when it comes to incorporating flexibility to include working parents. But there's still more work to do on child care, paid family leave, including for graduate or doctorate students, and a general recognition of the juggling working parents face, they said. Multiple women mentioned times when they were asked, by both male and female colleagues, iterations of questions about when they were going to take their careers seriously because they had had children. Others mentioned unrecognized or even explicit bias that led to meetings that were held on family holidays or during traditional hours children needed to be taken care of, which disadvantaged many working parents who couldn't participate during those times and therefore couldn't further their careers in the same way as others who were able to attend. Women are generally good at aiding others, so they're often pushed to do so in lieu of roles that pave the path to leadership. As in many professions, women in higher education are sometimes pushed to service roles because they are good at helping others. In academia, that might mean a teaching role rather than a tenured faculty role, or a committee that helps the culture of departments but doesn't have governing power, the group said. While those roles are crucial, they often receive less pay and have less say in decision-making. I wonder what we might do more to create more space for the people who are actually doing more of that service work, to have a commensurate voice on the future change that's needed, Nambard said. You see those gendered differences and disparities on who can do what in academia and then what is held as important and rewarded. I think there's a lot of work for us to do there, she said. Parker said service roles were amplified further in COVID when so many students were needing help. Those duties combined with what we're doing at home, which is disproportionate, really do pull women back, she said. I think we have not figured that out as a society, but particularly at higher institutions, because we know it's there. Official work committees are usually disproportionately led by women, the group said. Some of those committees are considered to be more prestigious, like a promotions and tenure committee, but other committees, like an undergraduate recruitment committee, while important and necessary, are not always viewed as highly within evaluations. There needs to be ways to count the service work toward promotion opportunities, the group members said. Why should women aspire to be leaders? We spend a lot of time talking about the burdens associated with leadership, the barriers, the challenges, and I've heard women say, I don't want to have to manage all the challenges that you have, Wilson said. So in our effort to try to work on the barriers, sometimes I think we emphasize the barriers so much that we are suggesting to young women that this isn't a very attractive path. And if you're going to go down it, 
then just know you're going to be bucking the system and working your tail off. And that's not a good message to send. We have to make sure we make them appealing, or it's going to be a turnoff to a lot of people, she said. The group shared the following reasons why women should aspire to be leaders. Leaders get to set the conditions for others to exceed, Parker said. There's no better feeling than when you see people succeed. Leaders can have a magnified impact and can affect multiple people through decisions, Christoph Brown said. While anyone can make an individual impact, leaders have influence to change systems because they have access to more people and resources. Leaders have internal and external influence, Zurich said. Sometimes leadership is hands-on, and sometimes a leader simply amplifying someone's voice, especially if that person is underrepresented, can help make change. Leaders make an impact through role modeling for the next generation of leaders, Sanders said. Leaders are important for mentoring. Mentors can guide mentees on what is needed to take the next step in their career, which is one area where men can help as allies to women, Uden Holman said. Leaders help others and help transform lives, Wilson said. I never wake up in the morning and think, why am I doing this job? I think, I work at this institution that is changing the world every single day. So finding a calling within the leadership realm where you care about what you're doing, if you have that privilege, it's something you should be grateful for, she said. Turning to Dave Elbert's column, The Elbert Files. Field of Suckers. I'm one of those guys who had a hard time walking out of the theater the first time I saw Field of Dreams. I wasn't prepared for the flood of emotions at the end of the film when Kevin Costner's character, Ray Kinsella, plays catch with his father. I tell you this so you won't think, I, think I'm heartless when I say Governor Kim Reynolds' plan to give $6 million of tourism money to the entertainment company that wants to create a limited-access TV series based on the Field of Dreams movie is the dumbest idea I've heard this year. The grant immediately brings to mind what happened in 2009 when then-Governor Chet Culver tried to make Iowa into a Midwestern version of Hollywood by creating generous tax credits for anyone who wanted to make movies in Iowa. It ended with a big scandal and Culver firing his head of economic development when it wasn't even the poor guy's fault. The legislatively approved tax credit plan was a disaster from beginning to end. Offering huge sums of money to anyone who wanted to make a movie in Iowa attracted boatloads of movie makers. The credits were poorly defined by law and exaggerated in promotional material. Filmmakers were led to believe that all they needed to do was submit vouchers for money spent in Iowa and they'd get a tax credit for half. Things quickly got out of hand when credits helped finance high-end automobiles that wound up in movie makers' driveways in California and other distant off-site locations. 
My Des Moines Register colleague, John Carlson, wrote a wonderful column in 2009 about the unfolding scandal. He began by quoting a news release from Governor Culver that said, quote, Iowans will not be taken for suckers, end quote. We appreciate the spunk, Governor, Carlson wrote, but every honest, straw-chewing rube can tell you that horse has left the barn. Carlson continued, We are indeed suckers, a lot of us anyway, smitten by the thought of spotting some third-tier actor at the next table in our favorite restaurant. Also high on the sucker list are the knuckleheads in state government who slobber at the very thought of nuzzling up next to somebody with a 90210 zip code. If it means handing a hay barn full of cash to people who make motion pictures, so be it, he said. Carlson explained that Iowans, quote, got hooked on Hollywood somewhere between 1988 when Costner made Field of Dreams near Dyersville and 1994 when Clint Eastwood and Meryl Streep made Bridges of Madison County outside Winterset. Sucker is a good word, he wrote, given that Iowans appear to be out untold millions of dollars because of a clumsy attempt to make this state the most attractive, make that cheapest, place in the nation to make movies. The scandal left Culver with so much egg on his face that the following year when Terry Branstad decided he wanted to return to the governor's mansion, he had little trouble. Now Reynolds, who was Branstad's lieutenant governor for six years, apparently wants to try the movie-making thing, but with a new twist. Instead of being egalitarian, like the Democrats were, and spreading the largesse by letting all movie-makers come to Iowa and apply for tax credits, She's selected a single project, the effort to remake Field of Dreams as a limited-access TV series. And it doesn't seem to matter that three days after Iowa's $6 million was promised to would-be producers, the announced distribution channel, NBC's Peacock streaming service, turned the project down. If I understand this correctly... Iowa essentially gave a $6 million no-bid contract to a company that immediately lost its downstream distributor. But state officials say that's no problem. One thought comes to mind, and it's not, if you build it, they will come. To quote my former colleague John Carlson, it's sucker. From the calendar, World Food and Music Festival. We'll return to downtown Des Moines on Friday, September 16th to Sunday, September 18th in Western Gateway Park. The festival brings together international cuisine, live music and performing arts, cooking demonstrations, interactive programs, wine and craft brews from around the world. The festival is produced by the Greater Des Moines Partnership. Learn more at World foodandmusicfestival.com Chicago Fed leader to speak at Drake University Hear an expert's perspective on the effects of recent monetary policy on regional and U.S. economic activity from Charles Evans 
president and chief executive officer of the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago. Drake University and the Des Moines Partnership will host the conversation with Evans on Wednesday, August 10th from 10 to 11 a.m. at Drake's Sheslow Auditorium. The conversation will feature a question and answer session with Evans, moderated by Robert Palmer, who serves on the Chicago Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago Advisory Council and is general counsel to the Iowa League of Cities. Partnership to host Multicultural Reception in August. Develop new relationships at the partnership's Multicultural Reception on Wednesday, August 3rd from 4 to 6.30 p.m. at the Iowa Bankers Association, 8901 North Park Drive in Johnston. The event will bring together those looking to build an inclusive region. Attend the roundtable discussion from 4 to 5 p.m. and reception from 5 to 6.30 p.m. Learn more at dsmpartnership.com forward slash events. The partnership announced a number of promotions and achievements within the organization. Pam Bull, promoted to Senior Director of Human Resources and Information Technology. Dr. Marvin DeGier, promoted to Chief Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer. Missy Farney, promoted to PR and Marketing Manager. Kyle Oppenheisen, promoted to Vice President of Communications. Angie Stepsis, promoted to Chief of Staff. And that does it for today's reading of the business record for Friday, July 29th, 2022. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening.